Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Welcome back, my friend. It is great to have you here again for yet another trek into this amazing book. Philippians, of course, isn't just a book. It is a letter. We talked about this before. It, it took the literary form of an ancient Greek letter. They had a very standard pattern or template that they all adhered to. At the beginning, the author would always announce his name and then announce who it was to and then provide a greetings. That was the normal pattern. But of course, Paul never does anything the normal way. He took this standard template and he infused it with joyful theology. So when he introduced himself, he didn't just say, my name is Paul. He introduces himself as Paul, a bondservant of Christ. So he's embracing this identity of his service to, to the Lord. And when he says it's to the Philippians, he says it's to the saints of Philippi. Again, encouraging them to embrace their identity as holy saints of God. And then instead of just giving a plain greeting, he speaks a prayer, an invocation over them of God's smiling grace and his shalom peace. And then he tops it all off with the foundation of which all of this theology is built, the source of all the grace and peace, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We already spoke last time about the fatherhood of God, but today I want to take a look at those last three words of his salutation where he introduces his best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. I say he introduces him here. Matter of fact, he's actually already spoken of him. In fact, this is the third time in the very first three verses that he's mentioned Jesus. Clearly, this person of Jesus Christ is at the forefront of Paul's mind and heart. So what does he mean by these words? You know, we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and those words have become so familiar to us. So I'd like to spend some time right now just trying to peel back the layers of what these words meant when he wrote them and how revolutionary they were. But let's start with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now and ask that you would take these words and apply them deeply into our hearts. Open them up to us that we might see you more clearly, that we might know you better, that we might worship you more honorably and serve you more faithfully and understand who you really are. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so who is this person that Paul is speaking of that he's so obviously fond of? Who is this man? His name is Jesus. Yeshua in the original language. That's his human name, a common name. The name his friends would have called him, the name his mommy would have called him when he snuggled up on her lap. But of course, it wasn't his mom or Joseph who assigned him his name. That was given to them by the angel. The angel told them that he would be called Jesus, Yeshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. For the angel said, he will save his people from their sins. And so he was given the name that is above every other name, Jesus. 
But Paul doesn't just refer to him in this verse by his name. He could have, of course. He could have said, grace and peace to you from Father God and Jesus. But he gives him two other titles, two very significant titles, titles that have become familiar to us that I really want to unpack for us today. He calls him Lord, first of all. Lord Jesus. The Greek word is kurios. What does it mean? We don't really speak of lords these days unless you happen to live in a country where there's lords and ladies and royalty and so forth. But what would it have meant to the original listeners? And what did it mean to Paul? Well, let me answer both of those questions one at a time. First of all, to the listeners. They were Romans. They were Greeks. The word kurios to them was a very familiar term. There were many people in those days who were considered lords. In fact, we came across an example of this uh, many episodes ago when we were working our way through Acts 16. If you turn back there in Acts 16, verse 16, we were told about a slave girl who made a great deal of money for her owners. She had owners. That word there was kurios. That meant her masters. It implied that they owned her, that they owned the profit that she was generating. They, t- they had complete control over her life. They were her masters. And so for Paul to call Jesus his Lord, when, when the Romans heard this, they, they must have been taken aback a little bit. Jesus is a master? He owns us? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul had in mind. When he calls Jesus his Lord, he is acknowledging that Jesus has full right of ownership over him. That Jesus has the right to tell him what to do, where to go, where to live. Everything he does Everything he produces belongs to Jesus. Jesus is his master. But it goes beyond just that. Because in the Roman world, to any good Roman, they knew that there was another Lord, a higher Lord, a Lord above all the other lords in the empire. And that is the emperor himself. In fact, he had temples where they would go and they would burn incense and they would make their pledge of allegiance. Caesar is Lord. And when they said that, what they're saying is that he had full and supreme authority over the entire empire. His word was law. He was the most powerful person in the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen, backed by the strongest army that had ever marched. He had all power that any human could have. And so he was called the Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so when Paul came to town proclaiming that there was a new Lord. You can understand how disruptive that would have been because he was proclaiming that there is somebody else who has lordship over even Caesar himself. That's inflammatory language. In fact, it wouldn't be very many years until the the Roman government caught on to what they were saying in these Christian circles and heads would begin to roll over that sort of proclamation. But Paul made it very clear to the Romans themselves. In Romans 10, verse 9, he says, If you want to be saved, you need to confess with your mouth, proclaim publicly a new pledge of allegiance that Jesus is Lord. This was his message. It was the message he gave to Lydia. You recall in, in back in Acts 16 again, when he was preaching to her, we don't have a record of what he specifically said to her, but we do hear her testimony. The very first testimony that she gave of her faith back in Acts 16, verse 15, when she said, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she said, 
If you consider me a believer in the Lord, then come and stay at my house. She was saying she was putting her faith in Jesus as Lord, and she knew the full implications of what that meant. He was supreme authority over all her life. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord to a Roman. Now, to a Jew, there's something even more. Because you need to understand the word Lord is all throughout the Old Testament. It In the Hebrew is the word Adonai. And Adonai means the same thing in Hebrew as Kurios does in Greek. It just means master or owner. But there's an interesting history of this word. It has to do with a name of God that has come to be known as the Tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, grammaton means letters. It's the four-letter name of God. Y-H-W-H, often pronounced Yahweh. It's the name that God gave himself way back in that flaming desert shrub in Exodus 3 when he said, I am who I am. You shall call me essentially the great I am. I am Yahweh. Now, that name became to the Jews such a holy name that over time it became untouchable, unspeakable. They couldn't they wouldn't even allow themselves to utter the name of, of Yahweh. And so they, a tradition sprung up where they would, whenever they saw that word on the page in Scripture, they would substitute, instead of saying Yahweh, they would substitute the name Adonai, Lord. And so when they translated their Bible into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the word kurios everywhere that the Tetragrammaton appeared. And so Paul, like any other Jew in his day, would have grown up reading verses like, The Lord is my shepherd, or the Lord bless you and keep you, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Or Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. These were the exclamations of Scripture about the sovereign majesty on high, and they called him the Lord. When they saw the word Lord, they knew who they were talking about. They were talking about the Holy One of Israel, God Almighty himself. And so for a devout Jewish Pharisee like Paul to use that word to describe Jesus this was an extraordinary declaration of his belief in the ultimate deity of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was God. He was Lord Jesus. My friend, I hope you see the power in this. When you hear someone proclaim the Lordship of Jesus, it should send shivers down your back. It is the ultimate proclamation. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul wasn't the only one who spoke like this. In fact, Peter, back in the very beginning of the book of Acts, in his very first sermon after the resurrection, he concluded it with this climactic phrase. In Acts 2, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What an incredible proclamation. And that brings us to the second title in Paul's greeting. Jesus is not only Lord, he is also Christ. So what does that word mean? 
Well, again, Jesus Christ has become a name that's so familiar that we almost think that Christ is his last name, like he was the firstborn son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ or something. But it's not his name. It's a title, just like Lord. But what does it mean? Well, you probably are aware that Christ means Messiah. Or to be more specific, Christ, Christos in Greek, means the anointed one. In Hebrew, the word is Meshiach. Again, it means the anointed one. Meshiach is where we get the word Messiah. But what does this anointing have to do with anything? Well, in the Old Testament, you'll recall that all the leaders were anointed. First, there were the priests, Aaron. Remember the oil running down on Aaron's beard? We read about in his anointed as a priest. And also the kings were anointed. You'll recall David was anointed by Samuel to become king. Even the prophets, or at least many of them, were anointed by like Elijah or Elisha would anoint uh, other prophets. And so the anointing was something that set somebody apart as a leader anointed by God to be a leader over the people of God. But all of those pictures, priest, king, prophet, they all pointed ahead to something else. And as the, the greater prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament began to make more and more clear, there was a new anointed one that would come. God was promising another leader, one who would be anointed by the Holy Spirit himself to be the supreme anointed one, the Meshiach, the Messiah. And for Paul, he grew up with these promises in his head. He knew because his parents would have told him over and over again, someday, son, God is going to send somebody to rescue us from all our fears and all our troubles and to set everything right. And Paul knew the Messiah was coming. He was just waiting for the day. He was looking forward to it with as much anticipation as some of us look forward to the rapture or to the second coming of Christ, because we know it's going to come. We just don't know when. And so Paul would have been looking for the Messiah, wondering if he might have the privilege of meeting the Messiah perhaps even become one of the Messiah's followers. But of course, the great tragedy in Paul's life was that the Messiah did come, and Paul missed him. He didn't recognize him. In fact, he started persecuting his followers. And so you can imagine his utter dismay when he was knocked off his donkey by that bright light, and the Messiah said to him, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul realized in that moment that everything that he had been living for and dreaming of, that he had missed it, that he had missed the Messiah. But of course, the story didn't end there because the Messiah found Paul. And he reached out and he embraced him and he forgave him and he enlisted him into his messianic kingdom. And that changed everything for Paul. Once he had discovered the true Messiah, that absolutely became everything to him in his whole life. Now he had not only knew the Messiah, he had joined with the Messiah. He had been transformed by the Messiah, and now the Messiah was everything to him in his life. It's all he could talk about. It's all he could think about. You know, in this last verse that we've been looking at in Philippians 1-2, he mentions five terms for God. God, Father, Lord, Jesus, and Christ. Now, I want you to guess which of those is the most commonly used term in the rest of the book for God. Well, if you just glance at any page, you're going to see the capital C all over it because he says Christ more than all the other terms. That's who he is. And when you see that word Christ, you need to think Messiah. 
the way Paul was thinking. Everything to him was about the Messiah. Philippians 1.18, he says, what is important, the only thing is important is that the Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Or Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. And Philippians 3, 7, he says, Whatever things were gained to me before, those things I count loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah, Jesus, my Lord. Do you see how excited he is about this? How thrilled he is to know the Messiah. Messiah Jesus is his Lord. Friends, I hope these words about our Savior bring a thrill to your soul like they did to Paul. It's why he was able to end the the great hymn of Philippians 2, the poem about Jesus. He ends it with these stirring lines. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yeshua the Messiah is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pledge our allegiance to you. You are our anointed Messiah and Savior. You have done everything so that we could become your servants, your slaves. You own us. You deserve to be our master Because you are our Savior, you are the Lord of all. We want to worship you rightly. We want to serve you completely. We want to honor you as Messiah of our lives. Teach us more every day about your name, the name that is above every name, because we proclaim, we pledge our allegiance to Messiah Jesus, the Lord of all. Amen. spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart and transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.